0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Economic and Business History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Filippo De Quirico, and I'm your host. Our guest today is Jacob Ward from the University of Maastricht, and we're going to talk about his new book, Visions of a Digital Nation, Market and Monopoly in British Telecommunications, published by MIT Press in the beautiful series on the history of computing. Jacob, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you very much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. This is a great book that shows how intertwined policy and technology are, especially in a sector that is so crucial to the lives of all of us, telecommunications. It's also a crucial field for historiography, I think. And in your book, you cover the second half of the 20th century in Britain. And you do so by mixing several approaches. There is obviously technology, there's finance, urban development, labor history. So we have a lot to unpack. But uh, first, could you tell our listeners something about yourself, what you do, and how this book came about?
1: Yeah, of course. Uh, so I'm, I'm a historian of science, technology, and neoliberalism at Maastricht University in the Netherlands. And uh, I've always been very interested in, uh, science and, and technology and, and engineering. Uh, and I, as an undergraduate, I studied the sciences. So I, for a long time, I was, I guess, more of a positivist about, about these uh, areas. And as I, uh, immersed myself in kind of histories of science and technology and science and technology studies, I, um, kind of had, a uh, the illusions kind of fell away and I managed to, I came to see, um, these subjects more critically and kind of develop a more nuanced understanding of the roles that science, uh, technology, engineering play in in public life, in politics, in society, in the modern world. And especially, uh, and this is really, I'd say, what motivates my my work more directly and is in the book, especially the way scientists and engineers embed politics in their work. Uh, I think that helps us understand better the politics of science and technology in the past and present. And... For me, I think a lot of what I think a lot of our contemporary ideas about science and technology, for example, about what digitalization does for the economy, does for markets, emerged in the era that I study, uh, the kind of post war, post World War II world in the 1960s and 70s and onwards. And so I want to criticize and historicize these ideas so we can work with less deterministic understandings of science and technology's influence on politics, on society in the present. As for how I came to be interested in British Telecom specifically, uh, it was a bit of a, a roundabout route. <laughs> I was um, I was hired uh, for my PhD uh, to write a laboratory history of British Telecom's uh, research and development lab, which uh, some <laughs> would argue is the kind of British equivalent to uh, at and Bell Labs, the famous laboratory where the transistor was uh, developed and and responsible for various advances in in communications technology. So I was hired to to write a laboratory history, uh, which eventually became one of the chapters in the book. But I I realized during that research that the history of British telecom, and especially its privatization in 1984, was a a hugely important historical moment uh, in the wider history of privatization, in the rise of neoliberalism in the UK and in Europe. Uh, BT's privatization in 1984 was at that time the largest stock flotation in world history. So a hugely financially important uh, event around the world. But the history of technology perspective on BT's privatization uh, was sorely lacking. So political and economic historians agree that its privatization was an important moment historically uh, for putting privatization in the neoliberal policy package, for initiating the large-scale denationalization of the UK's economy, for modeling privatization to the European economic community. But the fact that it was telecom where it happened first, as opposed to another industry infrastructure, you know, like energy, gas, electricity, for example, uh, that didn't really seem to matter in the existing accounts. And so I started from the position that surely it did matter. Surely it did matter that it was telecom that it happened in first. Um, and, and how did it matter was one of my questions. And that then leads me naturally to uh, a history of technology perspective on digitalization. Because if privatization was the big political and economic shift in the 1980s and 1990s, the parallel big technological shift in telecom was digitalization. But this was a longer and slower process that began in the 1950s and 1960s. And so the book and my PhD research uh, took me to uh, these two simultaneous changes or overlapping changes, digitalization and privatization and to see how they intersected to create what was a, a pivotal moment in British history and in the rise of New So
0: the your book begins with the British Post Office and the 1950s and 60s. Why? What were
1: they doing there? <laughs> yes. uh, so for uh, listeners who who might not know, um, before British Telecom ran the UK's t- telecom infrastructure, it was run by the British Post Office. And this is a model common to uh, many European countries called the PTT model, post telegraphy, telephones, one national agency that runs all of these communication services. So the post office was the predecessor to British Telecom, uh, which was created in, in 1981. Uh, in the 1950s and 1960s, this is when post office engineers started to seriously think about digitalization, what it would mean for their infrastructure, but also much more broadly, uh, what it would mean for society in general. I think that was one thing that, that really surprised me and I found quite powerful was was how broadly these engineers were already thinking in the 50s and 60s about what digitalization would mean for society at large, the rise of an information society, a second industrial revolution, they called it. And they, from these ideas, they developed this idea of a general purpose digital network, um, which for them meant um, a digital network that would transmit multiple types of information. So they wouldn't just be a telephone network or a telegraph network. They would also transmit data uh, for for computing and video service as well, both television and video telephony. But that also by computerizing this network, they could have created a network that would effectively manage itself, manage the labor involved in running it. Uh, So the post office's engineer-in-chief at the time, James Merriman, described this future digital network as a self-healing, self-governing network. And the idea of autonomous technology is something that's very present now, but it was very present then as well. Uh, and, And so then to summarize, they wanted to build this general purpose digital network that for them meant unifying, what they called unifying information, the information the network carried and administration. So for them, digitalization could never just be about a technical advance in communications. It also necessarily involved organizational changes to administration to management. That was what digitalization meant to them. And so a lot of the chapters that follow also look at these organizational changes within the post office and then later British telecom to see how digitalization played out both uh, within the network and within management and administration.
0: And how does this vision of a complex digital system intertwine with the welfarist policies of post-World War II Britain? So, so that's
1: a great question. And I think, at least within kind of the historiography of modern Britain, it's easy to see a lot of these developments in the 50s and 60s uh, as, as welfarist, right? You know, the, the famous British welfare state, the creation of the National Health Service and all of these uh, things. And I I would argue that's probably the wrong way to look at these developments. I think um, historian of technology, David Edgerton, has... has um, uh, said very well, that you know, uh, national engineers, technocrats—the people who built motorways, built electricity grids, who built telecommunications networks—these were not social democrats. These were not kind of welfareist political visionaries. They were—they were technocrats, right? They were engineers, and fundamentally, they were working within an extremely nationalized economy. Right um, after World War II, Britain had one of the most nationalized economies in Europe. And I think that's uh, an extremely important context uh, to to understand this, the idea that there is one national telecom provider. So one of the reasons uh, these engineers develop a vision of a general purpose digital network is because around this time, you you start to see the development of data networks. But these are specific specialized data networks. They just transmit data between computers. And the idea that there could be competition uh, against the national telecom provider from specialized data networks, that doesn't really make sense to these engineers. So they say, well, we've already got a telephone network. Let's make it uh, capable of also transmitting data. Let's not have multiple specialized networks that do different things. Let's have one national generalized network a general purpose network and i'd say the other um kind of national influence here uh is is very specifically from government administration from public administration so um the historian of of science and technology john agar has talked a lot about how um the british government machine right that that uh kind of developed um notions of how to um, mechanize and automate bureaucracy, and that was a really powerful movement—a movement of expert mechanizers, he calls—through uh, the 1950s and 1960s. And there was cross fertilization between the post office and and these government expert mechanizers. James Merriman, who I mentioned, the engineer in chief, had previously worked as an expert mechanizer for the for the treasury, and and so this kind of theory of public administration as a machine, right? The idea that you don't, have just, you don't just have technological machinery, but bureaucratic machinery, um, and these things can be automated simultaneously and in tandem with each other, uh, was a very powerful idea amongst these post office engineers. So that's, I argue, why they see digitalization as both about information and administration. It comes from a, a British kind of theory of public administration as automatable machinery.
0: In your book, you devote a chapter to a particular group of these technocrats, engineers in the post office, and that is the long-range planning unit, if I uh, remember the name well. What were they doing there specifically, and why um, is it important?
1: Uh, yes, no, you, you remember their name very well. They go through several name changes throughout their history. Um, in short, this, this group is, is basically a futurology department. Uh, which, when I came across it, I, I really was taken aback. I I, I I I saw this big series of files in British Telecom archives for their long range planning unit, and I and I had to investigate further. Just the name alone really uh, grabbed me. <laughs> um, so this this unit uh, was really set up to for, for two reasons. The first was to kind of sustain these long range plans and expectations about what digitalization would mean for the post office and and for the UK more broadly. And so you know they, they felt many studies about how uh, the, the world would change, how the UK would change in, in a post-industrial society, for example. And the second thing uh, these planners uh, did was to develop uh, systems, computerized systems, that would follow through on, on this promise of digitalizing administration. So to find ways to use computers to plan out uh, changes in the telecom network, to uh, use computer simulations to train staff on changes in the national economy, uh, these sorts of things. And there is a broader kind of vogue for futurology in the 1960s and there's been some really fantastic intellectual histories on on, on futurology. Uh, Jenny Anderson's book, The Future of the World, I think is a fantastic study of this. Elke Siefried's work on this as well. Uh, but a lot of that is focused on kind of more, uh, like I said, transnational circles of futurology, uh, academics, um, think tanks, and so on. And for me, I, I found it really interesting to look at what you might call a kind of more bun- mundane, more corporate, more uh, practiced view of what future futurology looked like in in a large corporation. Um, I mean, the post office in this period was behind the NHS, the the, the largest employer in the UK, and this, obviously the telecom division was smaller but still a, a very large employer. And so I, I look at you know various ways these futurologists developed computer, simu- computer simulations to uh, influence purchasing decisions. For example, one of them became very controversial, which is what I talk about in a later chapter. Uh, and more crucially, how this changed privatization. My ideas about how the world is going to look change a lot through the seventies. You have limits to growth, uh, positing you know uh, future resource scarcity. You have energy crises. You have economic crises. And then Margaret Thatcher is elected in nineteen seventy nine. And soon enough, the idea of competition, demonopolization and and privatization uh, are on the cards. And I think for me, one of the most interesting findings was that uh, computer simulations, which were developed in this unit, had started off as a way to understand the kind of corporate system, the post office and BT operated within. But they were soon adapted to incorporate um, competition and the market into these simulations and these were not used so much to actually make um, corporate decisions by executive management but instead it seems like they were used more to actually train staff to understand what the market was and what the market would mean for the future of British Telecom. And so in that sense, I think these simulations, these kind of futurological simulations became a pedagogical tool to to marketize staff and prepare them for uh, a future where they would no longer be working in a national monopoly. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best, it's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line, it's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder.
0: A few minutes ago, you mentioned the fact that the post office was the second largest employer in Britain after the NHS. And um, in your book, you devote a chapter to the fact that British Telecom and the post office were effectively a monopoly in telecommunications, but also a monopsony over suppliers of equipment and workers in their sector. Can you outline how institutional changes affected the situation over the period of time you analyze? Yeah,
1: absolutely. I think in the, in the UK, where we do have this history of having so many uh, nationalized public services, a lot of the public discourse about these national industries and infrastructures focuses on the fact that they are, from a perspective of, of citizens, of users and consumers, they're monopolies. You can only purchase electricity or telephony or whatever from this one national public company. So I think what then goes under the radar is that these industries are also monopsonies as well over the groups that 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 industry purchases services from. And that includes both labor, the people it employs. If you're a telephone operator in the 1950s in the UK, you practically only have one employer, the post office. And it's the same for... um, for national for uh, for industries um so for example the electronics industry in the uk especially you know telecom telecom equipment manufacturers uh companies like plessy or gec that made telephone exchanges could only really sell those telephone exchanges to the post office so I wanted to shift the perspective uh, away from monopoly, which gets a lot of attention to monopsony and to see how uh, digitalization and the rise of new forms of electronics and privatization affected the post office and BT's uh, monopsony over, over its labor suppliers, uh, specifically telephone operators and maintenance technicians and its equipment suppliers. So big uh, electronics companies like GEC, like Plessy. And what I found was that, I mean, before privatization, digitalization and the rise of electronics was already having an important influence here. So for example, automating long distance telephone calls. So you no longer needed to ask a telephone operator to make a long distance call on your behalf in the 1950s and 1960s, uh, forced telephone operators who were mostly women to, to redefine their value as laborers in more overtly gendered terms. They had to kind of um, more explicitly emphasize how courteous they would be in ways that conformed already to national race and class-based standards of femininity. Uh, and I also looked at how electronics changed the nature of maintenance labor for, for telephone exchanges. So it kind of segmented an internal labor market, only some people could retrain to do to maintain electronic telephone exchanges, which required very different forms of uh, maintenance to mechanical telephone exchanges. Uh, And and then finally, um, I talked a little bit about computer simulations earlier, and computer models and simulations were also used to really allow the post office to enhance their monopsonistic control over their suppliers. So there was one particularly controversial moment in the early 1970s, which made national news um, about... Uh, a post office computer model, which they had used to justify purchasing one type of telephone exchange called txe 4 from one of their suppliers, STC. And the other suppliers said, hang on a second, you can't, you can't do this, you know, we, 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 because who are we going to sell our telephone exchanges to if we can't sell them to the post office? And uh, the post office really relied on this idea that computer simulations produced reliable objective data. To, um, to 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 defend their decision, which the government si- uh, sided with in the end. Um, and then after privatization, I think um, this this changes again in different ways that are also reinforced by by digitalization. So this this uh, pattern of equipment supplier I've I've talked about um, was a, another pattern common across Europe Europe called the uh, the telecom club, where you had a national telephone provider. And then it's it's court suppliers, right? The um the companies that it would always go to to buy equipment, and with privatization, the uh, Thatcher government is really interested in developing BT's um kind of transnational uh corporate um clientele. Uh, it wants to it wants BT to move on to an international stage, and so. Privatizing BT, denationalizing BT is also really about transnationalizing the UK's largest telecom firm to allow it to get into international networking services harder and faster. And and for that to happen, BT wants to make sure it has a secure, stable supply of digital telephone exchanges, especially for these commercial customers like financial companies in the City of London. And so the Thatcher government makes decisions like. excluding certain British suppliers uh, from uh, telephone supply for, for, for BT's new digital system called System X, and then allowing BT to buy a competing system from uh, Ericsson in Sweden. And at the time, this was, and, and since has been criticized, as quite contradictory. Why would you, you know, first kind of intervene to allow one national provider of Digital telephone exchanges to sell to BT and then suddenly allow in a, a foreign competitor, but really that's only contradictory from the position of the of the British suppliers. All right from the position of BT, it's completely consistent in terms of securing supply chains for an important piece of digital equipment that allows them to provide better service to to commercial customers.
0: Yep, yeah, that makes sense. Um, speaking of Thatcher, a popular myth suggests that she killed the project of a national optic fiber network. Can you tell us what happened? Of,
1: of course, yeah. So there's this, uh, there's a, a popular myth uh, in the UK that Britain would have world-class uh, high-speed fiber optic broadband internet service if it wasn't for Margaret Thatcher. So the story goes, British Telecom was building this world-class network in the 1980s, and then in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, Margaret Thatcher decides that it's anti-competitive, that the government cannot support this, cannot fund this, um, and blocks BT developing this fibre optic infrastructure further. And I mean, it's as as with all myths, it's historically very inaccurate. But I think for me there are, there are there are several inaccuracies. I mean, the first is that yes, BT was investing to a certain extent in in fibre optic in the eighties, um, but they were you know nowhere near uh, the kind of majestic network that the myth suggests. Right, that would have required many more years and hundreds of millions of pounds uh, more funding. But I think it's also incredibly anachronistic to frame it through kind of contemporary uh lens as about high-speed internet at the time really it was about whether british telecom could expand into providing tv service and entertainment services to customers and this is something that um that the bt engineers had wanted to do for a really long time since they were post office engineers in the 1960s uh As I mentioned earlier, providing video services, providing TV was a key part of the original post office vision for a digital network. The idea that you would have one digital network, one cable running to your house, and you would get telephone through it, data through it, but also television. And so the post office made development decisions throughout the 70s and 80s, investing in certain technologies like fiber optic, but not just fiber optic, on the kind of assumption or premise that the post office would be able to expand into uh, distributing television broadcasts, not becoming a broadcaster in its own right. It wasn't going to compete with the BBC, but it would provide the infrastructure through which you could receive a BBC broadcast into your house. Rather than getting it over the airwaves, through an aerial on the top of your house, you'd get it through your post office cable connection. And so the post office and BT uh, lobby the government at various moments where reviews of broadcasting policy are happening to say, well, look, we're we're going to build this national digital infrastructure. It makes sense to let us distribute TV over it as well. And that was never taken seriously, right? I want to be clear. It was I don't think there was ever a moment where it really looked like the post office and BT were going to be given the reins of of, um, providing TV broadcasts. And yet these engineers and managers kept on making development decisions based on this premise that this would eventually happen. And so this then brings us to 1991, uh, the, the kind of key moment in the myth, when the conservative government supposedly decided to block BT's fiber optic network. But really what it was was, was legislating to say, no, BT cannot expand into cable TV. And this was to protect the emerging industry of cable television companies, and to allow those cable companies to expand. Uh, which is, I would say, also another example of the kind of de-nationalist um, uh, kind of economic policy of the Thatcher governments at this time, because a lot of these cable TV companies were owned by American cable TV companies. So it was about uh, allowing an emerging industry to expand and not being so much concerned with the, the, the kind of national origin of the ownership of those companies. But regardless, um, BT didn't expand. It was blocked for 10 years from expanding into TV. Um and, and that's really what happened, right? It was, it was about TV and entertainment services. It wasn't so much about optical fiber or the internet. And I think the overall takeaway is, is it shows how much the Post Office and British Telecom were developing for the future to an extreme degree. They were making assumptions about the reorganization of Britain's communications infrastructure that never happened, assumptions about demand for multimedia services that took far longer to materialize than they expected. And I think that also busts, for me, another myth, right? I think there is a myth that public infrastructures under national ownership are slow, are conservative. They're not on the cutting edge. Um, the post office itself was has, was called ossified. Um, it was seen as behind the curve technologically. But I think this, this particular chapter I have on this myth shows the opposite, that if anything, the post office was too futuristic, too ahead of the curve, and wasn't really developing enough for its contemporaneous circumstances.
0: In your book, you combine different approaches, mm-hmm. and one of them is urban history. You talk specifically about the construction of this research center in, in the Suffolk countryside in Martlesham Heath, which, as you told us, was actually the original core of your mm-hmm. PhD. What does this place tell us about the history of BT? So uh, Martlesham Heath is a
1: a small village um, about four kilometers east of Ipswich, which is the county town for Suffolk. And Martlesham Heath is uh, the location of two, for me, very interesting developments. The first is it's the site of British Telecom's IT park called Adastral Park, which houses both BT's research laboratories but also various other tech firms, including uh, Huawei, for example. In the past, it's also housed uh, Tech Mahindra, uh, Corning, for example, um, the, the glass uh, glassworks. Um, uh, uh, Dupont has um, had a has had a premises there as well. Uh, and surrounding Adastral uh, Park, this in this IT Park, is a new village called Marstallshire Heath, which was developed during the nineteen seventies. And was partly developed to support the, um, to, 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 to provide a place of residence for the people who worked at BT Labs and at, at Astral Park. And for me, the IT Park is kind of one of the quintessential spaces of the digital world, right? I mean the one that everyone thinks of is is Silicon Valley, but IT parks pop up everywhere, right? I mean, Silicon Valley is almost the exception and the IT park is is the norm, that you have a kind of industrial space on the outskirts of a large town or city where you have all of these offices devoted to networking services, maybe to doing some R&D as well. And for me, the history of Martlesham Heath really shows how uh, BT built a particular industrial space, this IT park, to um, partly kind of denationalize and outsource its corporate R&D, having, you know, turning what was a nationally owned laboratory into a a multinationally, transnationally owned uh, industrial park. But the way they did that um, really relied on this village uh, that, that, that surrounded them, Martlesham Heath, a new village, Uh, and both this village and the industrial uh, park really combined um, very kind of um, historically nostalgic narratives about England and about English science and uh, British boffinry during World War II uh, with an industrial futurism that saw the future of R&D as something that was no longer nationalized, as something that was transnationalized, and it's quite a contradictory mixture, but I think for me it shows that that turning the space into an IT park, really uh, a denationalised IT park, really relied on nationalising historical narratives about science and its role in in modern British history.
0: So let's uh, change scale. You've said before that part of the plans uh, for privatisation of BT meant that. Denationalizing the company would also mean transnationalizing it, and um, you have a chapter in your book about international telecoms and the role of Britain in shaping uh, digital networks across the Atlantic Ocean.
1: Uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, I think the, the the key point to start from is that um, business users. Um, especially for international services, are the biggest customers for national telecom providers. Right? So it's not residential users, it's business users with the main source of income, to the extent that uh, business users for most of the 20th century subsidized residential users. Right? So business users would pay more to rent lines, for example, from the post office, and that would keep costs for residential users lower. And that was part of kind the of, uh, nature of being a public, public service provider. Now, um, in the mid-20th century, um, across the, Atlant- the, Atl- the Atlantic, um, there, there were telephone services, but they were wireless. Right? They used radio, they were low bandwidth, they were unreliable, they were expensive. The bigger business at the time was telegraphy, sending text messages effectively um, across the Atlantic uh, over undersea cables and also through, through radio links as well. But these links, these telegraph links, were dominated by private telegraph providers based in the USA. So Western Union, for example, Radio Corporation of America was another. And the uh, post office kind of wanted to carve out some more of this international business for itself. Um, And so in the mid-1950s, the post office and AT&T begin to lay the first transatlantic telephone cable, the first cable that has high enough bandwidth to carry telephone signals across the uh, Atlantic ocean, but it could also carry telegraph messages as well. This big, this big international market of of international telegraph uh, messages. And initially um, this, this function is blocked in the USA by the federal communications commission. And so the post office um, says, well, the cable's going via Canada, so we'll do this telegraph service via Canada, and we'll route the telegraph messages to you know places in the US like New York via our Canadian partners instead. Um, so what this ha- what means what this means is that all of the American-based telegraph providers are um, are cut out of the market, and AT and T isn't allowed in at first. The FCC sees which way the wind is blowing, and um, allows this telephone cable to carry international telegraph messages across the Atlantic all the way to the USA. And the uh, telegraph companies in the US, like uh, Western Union, have to effectively start renting telegraph space from the post office and AT&T once their older cables go out of service. So what this is a very nice example of, and this is building on research, I should say, by, by Jill Hills, um, is, is really how the post office and AT&T manage to um, use technological change to disrupt existing patterns of international telecommunication services to to get a bigger share of the market here. And this is a pattern that in in this section of the book, I show repeats throughout uh, this period. So um, another key change here is the rise of satellites. You have the development of an international world telecommunication satellite system called Intelsat, which again, at first the post office is excluded from. And throughout the seventies, uh, the Post Office uh, and then later BT in the eighties, AT and and other European national telecom providers, such as CTNE in Spain or or, um, or what what became France Telecom in France, they want to have their transatlantic cables used to secure share of this market. So they um, find ways to present a kind of uh, organisational coalition to the FCC in the US so they can start getting new approval for new uh, telephone cables, which, again, will take market share away from Intelsat, this international satellite system. And what I find most interesting about this point in time, in the 1980s, um, BT, at the same time as trying to subvert Intelsat's monopoly over satellite communications so it can increase its share in transatlantic uh, cable communications, is also using Intelsat's network to um, provide satellite communications to mainland Europe in a way that will bypass European telecom companies' domestic networks. So so BT at this point is playing both sides, right? Using cables to undermine Intel sat on the transatlantic market, and then using satellites to bypass European telecom providers' networks in the European market.
0: Finally, your book ends with a chapter on the privatization of uh, British Telecom in 1984, where you show how influential it was, not just for the sector um, itself, but also for uh, the general discourse of Thatcherism and uh, the policy of privatization itself.
1: Yeah, so I think, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, there there have been kind of long-standing. Um, Uh, historical narratives about the importance of BT's privatization for policy. Um, You know, uh, privatization, Thatcher herself called her greatest export. (laughs) Um, But what I want to do is show that um, privatization wasn't just important for, for policy, but was also important for ideologies about information technology, one, and two, for the financialization of the British economy. And that these two different consequences shifting ideologies about information technology and the financialization of the British economy supported one another. These happened simultaneously. They, uh, these, these changes uh, drew on one another and that, uh, the post office and then BT were central to both. So on the financialization, um, this is kind of continues uh, a, a line from the previous chapter about business customers one of the most important business customers for the post office was financial users in the city of london and uh, from the late 1960s um, these users become increasingly frustrated with the level of service they're getting from the post office and so increasingly lobby for regulatory uh, change in british telecommunications to um, to secure preferential services for the financial sector and it's a long road that they are more or less successful um lobbying successfully for the end of bt's monopoly which they weren't they were passionate about but not the thing they were more passionate about was privatizing bt because privatizing bt allowed financial uh, companies to take a direct stake in the ownership of bt so uh, no no single kind of uh, group had a majority of ownership in BT after its first um, after its first privatization, the first sale of its shares in uh, 1984 but the kind of largest plurality of, of owners was financial companies after the British government which kept a 49 percent stake and this is what I say um, is why BT's sale was the biggest. Sale in world history at this time, it was because financial uh, companies saw the value in having ownership in a telecom company that would provide networking services that would allow them to um, turn London into a world financial center to transmit flows of financial data uh, faster and, and more easily around the world. And whilst this is also happening uh, alongside this, conservative politicians start to talk about Britain's telecom infrastructure differently, right? It it, it ceases to be, you know, merely a nationally owned enterprise, uh, merely a telephone company, and it becomes characterized as an information technology company, an information industry. And, um, for example, uh, Margaret Thatcher argues at a speech she gives in 1982 that privatizing BT, this information uh, infrastructure, will be crucial to um, propelling London to the heart of the world's financial markets. Right? She calls the financial sector itself an information processing machine. Right. So you see that um, there's this kind of financialist ideology about information technology that begins to develop at this time. And it is... Um, kind of overlaid with um, other kind of ideological commitments, like information technology will empower individual freedom; it will emancipate them from, you know, bureaucratic states and these sorts of things. But I think what is interesting and new, and so far underappreciated here, is the element to which there's a financialized aspect. To these to this to this ideology, an economic financial aspect that. Uh, a national telecom provider is an information infrastructure and that a financial uh, sector is an information industry. And if you privatize your information infrastructure, it can devote itself to the information processing needs of the financial sector uh, more directly. And so this leads to kind of where I conclude the book really, which is the development of what I call a London ideology, right? If the city of London is one of the world's most prominent financial centers and that is a, you know, Is a long historical development over over the last century, but uh, takes on a particular um, acceleration in the 1980s, partly with the Big Bang in 1988 with the deregulation of financial markets, but earlier here when um, the City of London manages to say we need to financialize the UK's telecom infrastructure. (laughs) To become more successful and conservative politicians see that um, privatizing information infrastructure will do this will empower financial centers and so facilitate free markets and so shrink the states and so this yeah financialization is seen as one step along the road to fulfilling these broader kind of neoliberal ideological commitments
0: so one of the things i uh, learned from your book one of the many things I learned was that the uh, privatization of BT was also influential in that in order to sell as many shares as possible, basically they came out (laughs) with this idea of shareholding democracy, popular capitalism, which um, if I understand well, was not a goal in itself at the beginning. But was very much instrumental to to making this privatization work. Yeah, popular
1: capitalism or, or, or share owning democracy has has been seen as one of the kind of key ideological commitments of neoliberalism from 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 its its early history. And in my book, I argue that's not the case. And what I'm building on here really is the uh, very insightful work of Monica Prasad in her book, uh, The Rise of Free Markets, um, where she looks at the development of Thatcherism in in one of the sections of her book. And she pinpoints that actually this idea of popular capitalism, of share-owning democracy, was not particularly popular amongst the Thatcher government, uh, with Margaret Thatcher, with her ministers, um, in their first term or, or very early on at all. And it was the privatization of... Uh, British Telecom that, um, that really transforms this, this idea of popular capitalism into a key value of, 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 um, of Thatcherism, of, of neoliberalism. So the idea is that um, BT's privatization was far more successful than they expected. Um, and individual shareholders, citizen shareholders, were targeted as part of BT's privatization. Partly um, I argue in my book um, using some new sources to um, create an illusion of competition for financial institutions, to buy stakes in BT. The idea that uh, individual shareholders were never really the main target for selling shares in BT. It was more that um, that their uh, policymakers were worried that uh, BT's sale would be so big it would fail. Right, that they wouldn't be able to find enough um, investors to secure to, to purchase all the BT's shares, and so individual uh, shareholders were were targeted to uh, create an illusion to financial companies that there might be some competition for BT's shares. And this was a, this was a strategy devised by Barclays Merchant Bank. <laughs> um, but BT's uh, privatization was incredibly successful, as I mentioned, uh, largest stock quotation in world history at that time, and there were lots and lots of um, citizen shareholders, and so they, um, and so, and so, this is where this this idea of popular capitalism, shareholder democracy, emerges from. But it was never really um, uh, an early key value, and I think has been very much overstated in terms of how important it was in BT's privatization as well.
0: So, Jacob, thank you so much for covering the old book, basically. I would like to ask you, what is your next project? What are you working on at the moment? Uh,
1: so my next project uh, continues this interest in the history of futurology that I developed uh, during the writing of, of this book. Um, uh, I want to kind of um, take <laughs> take uh, listeners back to the, um, uh, the beginning of the von der Leyen Commission in the European Commission um, in 2019, uh, and Ursula von der Leyen uh, said at the time that she was going to put something called foresight at the heart of European governance to make foresight, anticipatory governance about mega trends concerning science and technology into the heart of the EU. And foresight is a kind of package of f- futures techniques design- designed to think about what the future of you know, scientific change, technological change is going to look like. Um, And Foresight has its origins, one of its key origins, in in the United Kingdom. Um, The uh, government created a Foresight unit uh, for science and technology policy in 1994. It was also developed partly here in the Netherlands, where I live and work now. And so my next project is really looking at the history of Foresight and of futures research used for science and technology policy uh, in the UK from the late 1960s. Into the 1990s, to the creation of this foresight unit, and then into its kind of transformation into a particularly popular policy tool in Europe the science and technology policy. And I'm especially interested in how these futures uh, tools, like foresight, uh, promote certain assumptions about science and technology, such as you know the idea that innovation drives economic growth, which is by no means an economic fact, or ideas about the role that the private sector should have in funding public research in the academic world. So that's my next project. Uh, um, And yeah, I'm about a year into it now.
0: (laughs) Uh, looking forward to uh, reading it when uh, it comes out and hopefully present it here again on (laughs) (laughs) on the New Works Network. So thank you so much for presenting Visions of a Digital Nation and hope to see you soon.
1: Yes, thank you very much for having me.